0: Father in heaven, I pray that your Holy Spirit will be here today and will move in power and that you will bring conviction to us so that we don't live in the shallow water of philosophy or or the, the waves of doctrine, but rather we live deep, deep within your greater truth. Help us, Lord, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin in Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. We read these words. And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment is come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of water. So I have set a very aggressive goal for this message today, and here it is. That by the time we are done with this message today, you would all be Christians. Now that might strike you as a little funny. You might think, well, why else would I be here? Well, let me explain that a little bit. In making that statement, I'm not suggesting that you've never heard of Jesus. We might wish that there were a large number of people in this room right now who, or, or watching us online who, who don't know about Jesus and that we were telling them for the first time. We might wish that, but I'm not assuming that. I'm assuming most of you have heard of Jesus. I'm not even saying you're not saved. See, that's the thing about grace. God's grace is given to us even in the incompleteness of our understanding and practice. So I'm not saying you're not saved. In addition, I'm not suggesting that you don't love God. By asking this question, are you a Christian? I'm not suggesting you don't love God. You may very well love God. And neither am I saying you've never cracked a Bible or read it. Because it's possible to have heard of Jesus, to have a saving faith, to love God and to have spent quite a bit of time in your Bible, but not actually be Christian in the truest sense of the word. So what do I mean? What is Christianity built upon? Is Christianity built on airtight, irrefutable arguments? Well, I think intuitively we know it's no, but I think if you looked at our practice, it might sometimes suggest we think it is. We're going to argue you right into the kingdom. Is Christianity built on a logical conclusion that cannot be scientifically challenged? Well, I think sometimes we try to achieve that, But I think we'd have to admit that's not what it's built on, is it? How about this? Is Christianity built on a philosophy of God? There is things, therefore there must be God. Is that our foundation, a notion like that? Now, I'm not disparaging these things. There is a place for each of these. But none of these is the foundation. We're talking this fall about the messages of the three angels in Revelation chapter 14. And I told you last Sabbath in our our introductory message for this series that for me, the three angels break down into, into these summations. The first angel announces the victory of God. The second angel announces the failure of man... And the third angel comes to say, it's very important that you associate yourself with God's victory, not man's failure. We'll unpack that as we go along. And in fact, today I want to begin to unpack the message of the first angel, the victory of God. So we could call today Victory of God Part 1. Now I want to read you this text again, what I just read you at the top. This is the message of the first angel. Okay, so for me, when I look at this message, it quite naturally breaks into three pieces. The angel comes having the everlasting gospel to preach to them that dwell on the earth. So everlasting gospel is is piece one. Piece two of his message is he says, fear God and give him glory for the hour of his judgment has come. And then the third part, worship him that made heaven and earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. So we have everlasting gospel, we have hour of judgment, and we have worship the creator. Today I want to focus on everlasting gospel. So it'd probably be impossible for me to give you a perfect definition of the gospel because the the fullness of it exceeds my ability to understand, much less communicate. But for the sake of of us trying to understand, let's walk ourselves through a definition here. So this word gospel comes from a Greek word, and that Greek word is angelion, And that word literally means... Good news. Here's how it breaks down. The oo part is is a prefix. And whenever you attach that prefix to something, it says whatever is after this is a good thing. So that's the good prefix. And then angelion, does that sound a little bit like uh, angelos? That's another word that we translate as angel. You ever heard of that word? Okay, an angel is a messenger. And the reason we say messenger is because that word angoli- angelion means a message. So an oo angelion is a good message, it's good news. So, so, everlasting gospel, the gospel part here means good news. Something has happened that has shifted reality in a good way. And we are being brought this message that something good has happened. That's what gospel means. But now everlasting. Everlasting suggests that this good news, this event that has happened, is a a time-transcendent event. It's everlasting. The effects of it go on and I want to suggest to you the effects of it go on both directions in time okay that blows our mind a little bit but but stay with me here on this let's talk about gospel what is this good news that's come to us well the the first text I want to read on this is Romans chapter 1 verse 16 Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, of this good news, because it is, here's what he says it is, the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So the first piece I want you to lay down in your definition of gospel here today is that it is the power of God that brings salvation. This good news that's come to us, Is saying to us, God's power has worked salvation. You see why I call it the victory of God. It wasn't our power. God's power has worked salvation. All right, let's go on. Let's read another text here. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verses one to four. This is Paul again. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. There it is again. That's confirmation of what Romans was saying. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you of first importance. Now, this ought to make your ears perk up here. This is Paul. And this is Paul saying, this is what I told you that was most important. So you want to know the most important thing Paul ever said. Here it is. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. This is is what Paul says about the gospel that is of first importance to you. So, So this is the second thing you need to understand about the gospel. The first is by it we are saved. The second is it's the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what happened that brought salvation. All right, let's read Paul again. This time, 2 Timothy 1, verse 8. He says, So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. He's saying this news is so good, it's worth suffering for. He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, failure of man. See that language there? Victory of God, failure of man. Not because of anything we have done, but because of His own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus. Okay, now we're going to get some really crazy time stuff here. You ready? This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. That's before Jesus is born, right? So so we see the impact here going backward. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior. Okay, he puts us back in the present, or at least in his present. It has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Boom, and there it goes all the way to the end past eternity. So in this text, he's saying this gospel thing started back before Jesus even was there and lasts on into eternity. This event that Jesus achieves, this good news, at its occurrence, boom, impacts everything, both directions, to infinity. Always blows my mind when I think about that. This is the gospel. So, this gospel is the story of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, and then the implications of that. And through this, we're saved. And by this gospel, God has won the victory. That's the good news. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19 says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So let's put this together if we can. Try to follow this. The gospel is the news that God has achieved his goal of reconciling a fallen world to himself. The good news that has come is that God did it. He has reconciled the world to himself. Therefore, the gospel is God's victory. That's the message. The message is God has won. We also know that the gospel is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Therefore, it is through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that God has achieved his victory. You see that, right? See that connection? Therefore, Jesus is the victory of God. And those who believe in and follow Jesus are reconciled to God and made a part of God's victory through Jesus. And then this victory of God is an everlasting one because it transcends through time in both a forward and backward direction. This is how complete the work of God has been. This is how total his victory is. So here's the question. Is this what you have believed? Now, it's easy to say yes to that as long as we keep it in a a theoretical context. It's easy to say, yeah, 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 I've been told all of that. But do you live as though that's what you believe? Let's pull back again and look at this big picture. There's three parts to the victory of God that the first angel talks about. The first is the everlasting gospel. The second is the creator God. The third is judgment. Now, if we looked at it all from our linear perspective, we live life in a, in a linear fashion, moving forward in time, the, the story looks like this. God creates a perfect world, but we fall into sin then Jesus comes to redeem and reconcile that world back to God, and then God's perfect world is restored at the judgment. So you see how it moves through these three stages, the creation event in the fall, the salvation event in Jesus, and then the restoration event with the judgment. Does that sound at all familiar to the language of this first angel? Does he mention these things? So for us, we experience it in a linear way. But here's what's interesting about the victory of God. And this begins to remind us that his mind is beyond ours and his reality is bigger than ours. Because the event that causes the problem, that's the human failure, happens at the beginning. But the victory of God, it doesn't happen at the beginning, and it doesn't happen at the end either, does it? The victory of God takes place right smack in the middle of the story. And then the effects of that victory go both directions to redeem everything both ways. World history is linear. Salvation history starts in the middle. And this truth, this may seem a little esoteric to you, but this truth is the key to being truly Christian. Remember, we said at the beginning that was the goal, that at the end we would be truly Christian. See, Christianity is a faith that is born in the middle of the story. You can't be fully Christian and start at the beginning with the philosophy of God and somebody must have created, and then you stumble your way down and discover Jesus. No, that's not Christianity. Now, that's not to say that the creation piece isn't important, but it's not the foundation. And neither can you start at the end with judgment based in law and work your way back to Jesus. That's not it either. You start with Jesus and work your way to the end. Creation is important, but it's not the foundation. Judgment matters, but it's not the foundation. You see, Christianity is not an airtight argument that can't be refuted. It's not a logical conclusion that cannot be thwarted. It's not a philosophy of God Founded on the notion of the existence of reality. There's a lot of religions that are founded on those things. Christianity is not. It's born in the middle. You see, Christianity, the core of it is is actually simpler, yet more profound. You see, the foundation of Christianity is a confession of a divine conviction about the reality of a man who lived on earth 2,000 years ago. That's the core. That's the foundation. Origins are important, yes. End times are significant. But all issues of origin or destiny are secondary And I want to suggest to you, beyond understanding, unless you're living in the confession of this divine conviction from which Christianity springs. So what in the world am I talking about? Matthew 16, verse 13, when Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asks, who do you say that I am? Now, I want to suggest to you, this is the most important question in the whole Bible. The whole Bible. The foundation question, who do you say I am? And what follows is the most important answer in the whole Bible. Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. What I want to tell you today is this. You have become Christian when this confession of Peter is the deepest truth in your life. How did Peter get to this conviction? You think about the story of Peter. He hung around with Jesus. He traveled with him. He heard Jesus teach. He watched what Jesus did. You, you might be inclined to think that he discerned it through logic or that observation taught him, or you might even be inclined to think, well, well Jesus said it and, and he believed it. But now I want to throw you a curve here that you might not have expected. That's not where Peter heard this. Oh, Peter was told, but he didn't figure it out on his own, and it wasn't even Jesus who convinced him. Okay, you ready for this? This is crazy. You ready? Verse 17. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. Jesus is flesh and blood. Where did he get it? But by my Father in heaven. Christians are born the day they confess the conviction that the man Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago is the Christ, the Messiah of Scripture, and the Son of God. Anything less than this, not Christian. Christianity is not an attitude. Christianity is not a lifestyle. Christianity is not even just a set of doctrines. Christianity is every person who believes Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, at the deepest core of their being and here's the thing this conviction can only come from one source god himself think i go too far with that Does it feel like i'm pushing that a little well let me throw john chapter six forty-four at you no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and i will raise them up on the last day if you believe this it's because you have been told this by god himself you thought god never talked to you so this creates a bit of a problem i get that how can an unbeliever become a believer have you ever spent time reflecting on that you ever wondered how did i become a believer this is something we've sometimes misunderstood in our otherwise good intentions. We've, in our desire to see unbelievers become believers, we've set out with a course of logic or, or, or strong-arm convincing. So a lot of things we've tried to do to make unbelievers into believers. And here's the thing, any believer can say these words, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And believers need to say those words, but no one that's flesh and blood, and I'm pretty sure that's all of us here, no one that is flesh and blood can prove that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God through an airtight argument or unassailable logic or even a philosophy of God. You can't prove it. There's only one way to know. God Himself by the Holy Spirit must tell you Therefore, faith in Jesus at its core is a supernatural thing. Everyone who believes has experienced a miracle. How can I hear a God I cannot see? Why would I believe what my senses can't prove? Well, I can't really answer that. And I'm not even going to try. And here's the reason. First, like I said, I can't prove it. But second, I don't have to. Why? Because that's God's job, not mine. And third, as we will see when we get to the message of the second angel, godless human argument Human logic and human philosophy are the backbone of the failure of man. Why would I use failed tools to comprehend God? Why would I give them dominion over the victory of God? Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, there's been confusion on that text, thinking that that somehow Peter is the the foundation stone of the church. But... uh, we're pretty clear that's not true, right? Peter himself was, was failing like we are. Jesus is the foundation stone of the church, and the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, is what makes a Christian. The church is built on this confession, and in fact, the church are those who confess this truth. It's the only sure foundation. Peter himself would later write these words. 1 Peter 2, verse 6, he's quoting, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Well, he's not talking about himself there, is he? He's talking about Jesus. So here's the conclusion. I talked a little bit last Sabbath about the Seventh-day Adventist church and, and this idea of in the context of the three angels' messages and how we have built into the very mission of our identity this, this message of the three angels and how it's played a part in, in our visuals and in our, in our logos through the years. But here's what I want to tell you today based on these three angels' messages that we say is core to who we are. To be a Seventh-day Adventist, living in these days in the context of the three angels, you must first be truly Christian. You can't be Seventh-day Adventist without first being truly Christian. And if all you have is based on a lot of teaching and a lot of doctrine and a lot of behaviorism, but you don't have that core, that conviction in your heart about who Jesus is, then you're just caught in the trappings. And you're not truly Christian. This is one of the risks we have. You see, any church that has lots of stuff gives you lots of opportunity at behaviors that make you look like you are one. But it's not what you look like, it's your heart. What's at the core? What will it take for you to be a believer? 1 Corinthians 1, verse 22, Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Here's the thing, if you're caught in your senses, if you're caught in your logic, All of these things, you're going to be saying, oh, you're the Son of God, prove it, show me a sign. Or you're a Greek, and you'll be like, oh, well, show me through clever argument how Jesus is in fact. No, And we don't do that. Our message is simpler. And it's a stumbling block to those who want signs, and it's foolishness to those who want proof. But what we say is... Jesus died for our sins. And He rose again and lives eternally. And in Him we have life. And we don't try to build up a whole bunch of stuff on that. We just tell it. And then the Holy Spirit comes into our hearts. And and we want to believe. We feel the conviction. God Himself speaks to us and says... He who has an ear, let him hear. This is the great truth. Hear it. To those whom God has called, it is Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is the everlasting gospel. And this is what the angel comes to proclaim. And this is what we, as Seventh day Adventists living in the context, first need to believe and second need to tell. It's the core, it's the heart. We're going to build a lot of stuff on that, and that's good. But if the core is wrong, the shell will break. It starts with a confidence, not being ashamed of this gospel. We're going to hear this song. Jennifer's going to come and sing for us. But this idea that that I believe this, and this is my core. Come on up. Because God has a word for you today, and that word is simply this. First, before anything else, God says, believe in my Son. Jesus Christ.